You're now listening to Roadmap to Politics. Um, welcome to the Roadmap to Politics podcast. I am your host, Alex Martinez. I'm your other host, J.H. Viroff. And we have a special guest today, um, grad student from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Ben Power. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. It's great welcome to be here. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Yeah, you. definitely. So um, we kind of just want to do this like a little interview style, just maybe like a little bit to what we normally do since we usually just have our hosts on. So um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. Well, I, as you can tell from the accent, I'm Australian. Uh, born and raised in Australia. I did my undergraduate degree in political science at the Australian National University in Canberra. Did my master's degree in international law at the University of Sydney. And I'm now in the PhD program here at UW in political science. This Ooh. is my, my fifth year. So it's been a little while now. And mm. uh, I'm hoping to be out of here in 18 months. Okay, that, then 10 months. That's a good... <laughs> It's a good chunk of time before. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got any plans for what you're going to do afterwards? Uh, I. It's open at this point. I've worked in government at national and local levels. I've done development work in the Asia Pacific. I've uh, uh, done plenty of uh, private sector stuff as well. So I'm not sure exactly where we'll go, but uh, mm-hmm. plenty of options. Take I'll a little break for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Take a little. Take a little break. Go to um. Go to Australia, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I'll enjoy some summer after Ooh, after yeah. a little. Just in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you gotten used to those yet? No. No. <laughs> I don't think ever, anyone ever does. No. Unless they lived here. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm born and raised here still. I'm not still used hurts. to it. Yeah. <laughs> still yeah, hurts yeah. to go outside. <laughs> I mean, I've seen some interesting people who just go around in shorts. <laughs> oh, I, did, I was coming off the hill today and I saw a dude who had a t shirt, shorts, and like a headband on walking down the hill. And I'm like, it's negative. It's almost negative. Out. What are you Someone doing? Trying to prove points. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll let them have that. You know, it's, it's whatever you're trying to prove, you win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just see somebody come out in flip flops. <laughs> that's that, unbelievable. In Crocs. That that's oh. when it's some, that's a power move right there. That is a power move. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyways, um, Ben. So we know a little bit about your background, your education, and so we're kind of curious. Like, what do you research? Right now. It's a good question. I ask myself that pretty often. Uh, but but the focus of my research, what orients all of the different things I do, and it, it is a bunch of different things, is looking at the question of how technology shapes the relationship between the citizen and the state. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 sort of the, the, the guiding star around which, which I try and orient what I do. A big part of that is, is human rights, because mm-hmm. I think the project of human rights is one that tries to shape the relationship between citizens and states. And yeah. that's something you know I've spent this semester uh, teaching human rights at a legal studies course on campus. And that's one of the main themes that I really tried to orient all of these human rights discussions around is that, that ultimately we're trying to shape the way that states relate to citizens. But technology is increasingly a really big part of that. And yeah. it turns out that we don't have a particularly good way of thinking about that, of trying mm-hmm. to understand exactly what it is that technology is doing, how it, how it mediates that mm-hmm. relationship in a whole bunch of different contexts. So yeah. that's the primary focus of what I'm trying to do. Okay. okay. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that kind of makes me think a lot about because the last episode we were talking about um, the importance of media bias and, and media literacy. And we were talking about sort of like technology and like the um, idea of privacy primarily when it comes to how we ingest or te- digest news. 
and particularly the way like um, Google, for example, uses like the way that you search things to kind of tailor um, what kind of news you get. And now and it's not necessarily exactly the relationship between states and the citizen, but I can see a lot of the implications that could have. Um, yeah, it is. And look, there are a lot of parallels. I think one of the really interesting things that comes across from a company like Google uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that has such a large amount of data is the way in which ordinary interactions or, or interactions that traditionally we would have thought might have had some, some, some privacy or a lot of privacy scholars, particularly in the legal tradition, write about obscurity, mm-hmm. sort of ordinary things that you do in your day-to-day life that aren't strictly private, they're outside your own home, you know, so whether that be a public internet site or even just on the street, then you're not necessarily in the private sphere, but you expect your behavior to be obscure. We right. don't expect somebody to log it, to record it, to observe it, and ultimately to use it to put you in a category and mm-hmm. to sort of define behavior. But increasingly, technology means that that's exactly what's going on, whether it be Google or whether it be states as well. Yeah. So with Google tracking all of your search history, it's <laughs> the, the, like, you know, the, the straight thought that you have, you know, whether it be, you know, is Pau Gasol fit to play tonight? Or, you know, so what am I going to have for dinner? Like, that, that's not mm-hmm. obscure anymore. Yeah, There's right. a record of that, and that helps put you in different boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that can be true just as much private companies as it can for states. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, I see that all the time. Like Google knows, for example, I looked at some shoes the other day because <laughs> these shoes are trash that I'm wearing right now. But like, uh, and immediately every single website that I went on, every single everything that I went on, just advertisements for shoes, advertisements for different brands of shoes. And I think that you, as you were talking about, privacy is kind of just gone. Like it's at least the traditional sense of privacy, like your internal thoughts about like, what am I going to buy, especially in a consumerist more style. Um, and I mean, obviously you study this, how the state studies that. So I mean, how that relates from like businesses to states, could you like, there's a really interesting body of literature on this. And a lot of it comes out of surveillance studies, which mm-hmm. is a sub branch of sociology. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, uh, group of people who focus on surveillance. And there are a number of terms to describe that sort of relationship between businesses and the state. Uh, some people call it a surveillance regime, sometimes a surveillance industrial complex. Mm. But uh, David Lyon in particular, who's, who's a sociologist up in, in Canada, so really, get, I think he gets at the heart of this when he says that states and private companies are both looking for information. Mm-hmm. They're actually mm-hmm. looking for similar things here. So yeah. oftentimes you'll get quite cozy relationships between them because there isn't any interest in rocking the boat. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, 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 why, would a, why would a private company not want to cooperate with the state? It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have any... I mean, as long as there's a legal framework in place, then sure, why yeah. not? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the early... Uh, programs that uh, the in, in the United States, the NSA put in place after 9-11 operated on exactly that basis. So that one of the things that we we already knew about before Edward Snowden's revelations mm-hmm. was that private companies had absolutely volunteered to give up things like metadata or cell phone records mm-hmm. because these cozy relationships are in everyone's interest. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the, the, it's not to say that there's always that type of data sharing, but there's a lot of it. It's a lot of really porous barriers between public and private sectors in many different contexts. Hmm. I mean, that's completely different than like in the 1950s and stuff when the private sector was the private sector. You were, it was <laughs> private and there was a public sector. And it's sort of like the way that I think of that is sort of there's the, like in the NFL, the National Football League, you have one public team that's the Green Bay Packers and that's how they get all their data from. 
and all the other ones are private and you just don't see that anymore in like the the problem with now nowadays that was how it used to be like like the nfl is today but like to now it's more just like there is no line and that's kind of what you're getting at i think right i think that the it can be easy to overstate the degree to which you know, governments mm-hmm. have access to everything mm-hmm. and right, right, right. private companies so so i don't want to make that claim too strong yeah. but i do think that it you know, uh, uh, the most important case, let me talk a little bit about the law since I think that's interesting. Yeah. The most important um, recent case on this is, is came down earlier this year, uh, in 2018. It's called Carpenter of the United States, the mm-hmm. US Supreme Court. And essentially that was about cell phone site location information, which is basically the record of your movements that's kept by your cell phone at all times. Mm-hmm. And the question was whether the government could access that information without a warrant. Uh, and and the Supreme Court eventually ruled no, which is a really you know really important implications for privacy that I'm very happy to talk about later. But I think that the the example here was that private companies had been willing to share that information. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, the private companies being cell phone providers, even the, and, and whether it was strictly legal or clearly there were policies that said it was okay, but it hadn't been tested in the courts. But there was no incentive for these private companies to really go. To war with with right. the government, and it yeah. took it took a defendant in a criminal trial to say this information should be suppressed uh, mm-hmm. in order for that to come out. And so I think that that's where you see this relatively porous barrier. It's not that there's one you know public private conglomerate that's right, intruding right. into all of our privacy as much as so often inform- everybody wants to collect information, and the sharing of that information isn't seen as much of a, a problem unless it's really really clearly black letter law illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't know, the one case that makes me think about when it comes to um, kind of like this idea of privacy and um, kind of in the government is usually the case of the FBI with, remember the San Bernardino shooting that yeah, happened? Yeah. Um, I, forget, I think it was like 2015, I believe. Some 2015, yeah, 2016. I remember that case when Apple kind of, it was like this huge dispute between whether the FBI can mm-hmm. use this sort of like, um, they they could ask um, Apple to kind of give them access to their phones, right, to their encryption services, mm-hmm. or something along the lines of that, to in order to access the phones of individuals who committed shooting. However, that did kind of like lead to some issues of would this like allow the FBI to have um, access to everyone else's phones? Was that, I, remember, I think that's where I, I, how I remember the case. Yeah, but that's something that really makes me think about when you we talk about this type of issue of privacy and. To what extent do we allow the um, government to have such access, and how does that p- play a role in how um, should we have a little bit more separation, or should we keep it, or I don't know, how do we regulate that yeah, without yeah. infringing? I think that one of the challenges is that this hasn't been much of a problem up until this point in time mm-hmm. because. The internet itself was not built with security in mind. Mm-hmm. It's an inherently insecure environment. It's a product of academic research. Yeah. Uh, and so it was designed for a small, trusted community of users. So we haven't built security into, mm-hmm. into the internet. And when we were dealing even in an earlier time with things like telephones and telegraph wires, those were not encrypted. Mm-hmm. So at no point up until now have you had a problem of what we call encryption by default. Mm. Right. That's changing. And it's changing as a result of the actions of large private companies. And Apple is, mm-hmm. is uh, a, a pioneer in this, but Google and Microsoft as well, where by default, they encrypt a large amount of information that previously didn't used to be encrypted. That poses problems for governments. 
because mm-hmm. all of a sudden governments where they previously had a legal uh, legal right to access, for example, someone's iPhone, as mm-hmm. in the San Bernardino case, right? The yep. problem there wasn't the law. There was mm-hmm. clear, you know, whether you want to get a warrant, whether you yep. want to say, you know, uh, suspecting commission of a crime, it doesn't matter. There's clear legal authority to inspect the contents of that iPhone, but because it is now encrypted by default, right? Mm-hmm. Or because we might switch to messaging apps like WhatsApp yeah. that are encrypted by default, that creates problems of access that simply haven't been there in the mm-hmm. past. So I think that's one of the reasons why this is becoming a bigger issue. And not just in the United States, it's it's front page news in the UK and Australia. Hmm. Just, I mean, just in this past week, I'm not sure. yeah. those are the countries <laughs> that I thought, but it's yeah, it, it really, right now, this is a really important issue. Hmm. And so um, just to go off of, so you study mostly, uh, so like how the individual and how the state are affected by technology mm-hmm. and how their privacy and how their human rights are just influenced by that. Do you ever study interstate stuff like that? Like, yeah, it's it's really difficult. One of the problems, not one of the problems, really exciting things about studying <laughs> digital technologies is that it can be really difficult to break down this sort of interstate versus intra-state yeah. politics. Mm-hmm. So it is, yeah, it is really really difficult. I think that one of the one of the fascinating things, and, and we can go back to, uh, you know, let's say, the case of, of Apple, right, mm-hmm. which has encrypted these iPhones. It is there. It's not publicized by Apple, but Apple has been required by the Chinese government for a number of years now to install a particular type of, of Wi-Fi motor, a particular type of, 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 of chip on all of the iPhones that it sells in China. Um, it doesn't include that particular modem or chip in any other iPhone sold anywhere else in the world. It's only in China. And the reason is that that's an imposition by the Chinese government. It uses a particular form of encryption that isn't peer-reviewed, isn't open to be tested by anybody else. Hmm. And I think most people who studied this stuff are pretty confident that the reason the Chinese government does that is because it is able to crack that, that form of encryption. Right? Um, that's a case where you really do see into you know, real differences between states. So it can sometimes yeah. be easy to gloss over those differences and just to say technology flattens the world, which isn't true. Uh, it certainly changes the nature of some of those interstate issues, but um, the phenomenon of data localization that we're increasingly seeing, where companies require that data kept on their citizens or data collected within a given country is kept within a country. So it's physically located in a country rather than in data centers in Iceland or Canada or something like that. That's another example of how territorial politics still matter. Mm-hmm. And the reason they still matter is because states want to get their hands on that information mm-hmm. subject to their own legal codes if if something comes up. So yeah, we're, we're still seeing these interstate politics. Mm-hmm. Technology doesn't make it go away. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Huh. So it's not becoming this giant like globalized central thing. Yeah. Because like, I know that your um you your 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 working paper title right is cyberspace is a spatial theory of online governance, right? Yeah, so, yeah, that's one of the papers. Well, yeah. that's one of them. Um that's just the one that we have yeah, right here. Course, um, yeah. so it doesn't like there still is that in interstate kind of thing. There's definitely that, that still interstate thing. Yeah. Just online governments, just your governance doesn't actually mean like you're gonna have a government online or anything. No. It just means mm-hmm. like you're gonna have a, just more government regulation, more government like infiltration of privacy, all that other stuff. I think you make a 
I think you make a really great point when you're distinguishing it between governance and government. Yes. Yeah, because, yeah, go- governments are one way of organizing governance. Right. But it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that some of the technologies I study, which which is is in particular the blockchain, so yeah. that thing that under, under, <laughs> underpins Bitcoin that everyone's heard about by now, yeah. uh, that and also anonymized browsing technologies, things like Tor, the Onion Router, that allow you to access the internet in a much more anonymous way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things that technologies like these do is they enable new forms of interaction that yeah. we simply couldn't have before because it wasn't possible to interact with each other's with, with other individuals in particular ways online, right? And when we interact with each other digitally, we are prisoners of what the technology allows us to do. So when you change the technology and you have new technologies, you create new ways of interacting with other people, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that lets you do is create new forms of governance. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm trying to get at with, with that paper, is really trying to think about different types of interactions and different different places online, we can think mm-hmm. about those almost in spatial terms. Yeah, right. Right. It might well be that a darknet site that where you can buy drugs illegally online, mm-hmm. we think about that as a particular space, then it yeah. has its own governance dynamics. And, mm-hmm. and that's really deeply affected by the technologies on which it's built. And that's something that we've, we're starting on now to think about, at least in political science and criminology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're talking about like kind of those different spaces that can be kind of created using these type of technologies like Tor or the Onion Route that you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. One thing that I remember kind of hearing whenever I, besides the kind of like the illegal activities that can happen when it comes to using these type of technologies is more the benefit of people who are um, journalists, for example, who can actually um, interact with different people using these nets in a much safer way that allows mm-hmm. for that kind of like privacy that's needed. So in a sense, what do you think um, technology such as Tor has, what kind of influence does it have on politics in general, do you think? Uh, it's, a, it's a really tricky question. It's a great question. I think that w- uh, one of the old adages in, in political science, but you know, in, in, in law broadly as well as follow the money. Mm-hmm. So it's bad when you follow the money behind Tor. This is a project that was developed with funding from the U.S. Department of Defense, funded mm-hmm. by sort of the Naval Research uh, out of Naval Research Equilibrium, yeah. uh, and it continues to get most of its funding from the State Department, or a large portion of its funding from the State Department. They've just mm-hmm. been running a fundraiser now uh, yeah. for private donations. But yeah, a lot of the people, the researchers who develop this technology, are funded by the government, and there are reasons why that's the case. Yeah. In, in particular, for the U.S. government, there are two. Right. One is uh, obviously uh, is military applications, particularly you can think about that more in terms of espionage, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. useful for the US government to be able to communicate with people overseas, whether they be informants or mm-hmm. something else, in ways that are clandestine. And actually, the you know, think about the adage the uh, the the this privacy in a crowd or the wisdom of crowds. So if everybody's using this software, then one individual using it is much harder to track. So that, yeah. that's that's sort of one reason why governments would absolutely want this. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is another reason, and that's where the State Department gets involved, and it's because these technologies are often seen as a means of promoting democratization. And mm-hmm. There is a belief that access to information is part of promoting democracy, that that's sort of yeah. a one-way street. I think there's been a lot of pushback to that recently. I'm mm-hmm. personally very skeptical of that. And mm-hmm. I don't think that a lot of the smart uh, academics who think about this do buy that relationship. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly been 
very strong historically. So there's been a belief that these technologies can help with democratization, mm-hmm. for example, by enabling the free press mm-hmm. in ways that, that sort of are, are teleological, that they yeah. have a necessary endpoint of more free and open societies. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, usually this happens, like we'll have like that point where it just goes from here and <laughs> here, and then we're just like, uh, oh, wait. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> But yeah, that that is that is really interesting to hear. Actually, just kind of thinking because I didn't know exactly who who funded Tor for for a while. I just kind of heard about it and just kind of knew what it was, but never knew like that it was made for the intentions of the U.S. Department of Defense. Yeah, but um, it is interesting to see how regular citizens can use it to kind of like um, not promote, but kind of to um empower themselves in a sense yeah. when it comes to how they re- re- relate with the state, even though it is something that's created by the state. Yeah, I think that I I know that my focus is relatively limited. I want to concentrate on citizens mm-hmm. of the state, and part of yeah. that is influenced by my background in human rights, mm-hmm. and that is the Human Rights Project. Yeah. The But the border issue, it's something that I try and touch on, but I, I don't my dissertation at least doesn't doesn't engage in specifically is is exactly what you're getting at that it enables new forms of interaction mm-hmm. sort of what we were talking about a little bit earlier yeah. that you can there are new forms of governance possible because new forms of interaction are possible with other people and yeah the technology plays a really important role in dictating that so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of literature out there that sort of talks about what, what I term the ideological agnosticism of mm-hmm. technology, saying that this is ultimately just a tool yeah. and it can be used for positive and negative ends. Tor is a really great example of that. If, if that's a belief that you subscribe to, then you'd point to the fact that it can facilitate things we might see as normatively undesirable. Mm-hmm. Whether that be drug sales online, which, yeah. you know, if it's marijuana, then many states in this country at least already legalize that. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's not such a problem. But yeah. definitely if we see it for illegal arms sales, yeah. which is yeah. absolutely something that we you know, might see on an, a dark net marketplace. Sure. So that might be a bad thing. But mm-hmm. the flip side is, are we able to exercise First Amendment rights of freedom of speech uh, yeah. in ways that can't be tracked? Can we now help the free press by enabling reporters to communicate in repressive regimes. There's a sense in which this technology is agnostic and it's just a tool that can be used by anybody. Yeah, because um, I remember when I was kind of researching a little bit more about blockchain in general, just like the technology, I remember reading like some applications of it. I actually have seen, I went to a hackathon one time just to kind of see what that was like. And there was one challenge where, how can you use blockchain technology to improve healthcare? And a lot of one project that had that had to do with that was kind of the um, using blockchain to kind of like make data medical records much safer to kind of to because like um, privacy laws in terms of healthcare are a huge issue when it comes to like kind of how do you keep um, private health information kind of like protected. And one project that they did was kind of had to do with um, blockchain technology for that. I kind of didn't understand at the time because my li- my knowledge of blockchain technology was limited at the time, but the applications of blockchain um, away from just like what we were talking about to either to healthcare or even, um, for example, I, I remember I've seen suggestions of perhaps using it to improve voting systems was an interesting, <laughs> which I feel I feel like Ben's is a, a lot of an interesting 
um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so let's take a step back and let's yeah. talk about let's let's get into some of the details mm-hmm. of, of blockchain in particular because it is a fascinating technology. Mm-hmm. It's really really interesting, uh, both in terms of its cryptographic structure, like uh, you know, in a technical sense, what is this technology, and also in terms of the potential applications. So, uh, in essence. I think of I think the easiest way to think about the blockchain is just as a form of database, mm-hmm. right? And some real information science people will quibble with that description, but for our purposes, that's fine. It's just a form of storing information. It's mm-hmm. just a form of storing data, right? But one of the, the the thing that makes it unique is that rather than having a single centralized database, you know, so one point of access, even if lots of people can all access the information stored there, it's all stored in one place. A blockchain is distributed. Right, so we can sometimes term it a distributed ledger. It's a record of interactions between individuals. It's a record of something going from one person to another or one, one object being written into or out of a particular database. But instead of that collection of records being held in one central place, it's actually maintained simultaneously on thousands or tens of thousands of computers all at once. And the cryptographic magic, the technological magic is in making sure that all of those computers are able to update and speak to each other and agree on a single record of the truth mm-hmm. in ways that we simply haven't been able to do before because you run into a number of problems like the double spend problem. Mm-hmm. How can I make sure that the one Bitcoin I have, I don't send to Alice and to Bob at the same time? Mm-hmm. You know? And then how, how do we prove who it is? So it's a really fiendishly complex technological problem. And the blockchain is one way of solving it. So it is the first sort of real distributed ledger at scale that we've seen. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it technologically interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there are two attributes of it that start to bleed over into what we might be more interested in, which is the political implications. Yeah. One of which is that it makes digital scarcity possible in a way we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. So I think this is, this is a, a really, really interesting way of thinking about digital goods in general. It's really, really hard to keep something that's digital from replicating. And Napster is the great example of this, oh, right? Yeah. Like it turns yeah, out with right. online media or, or whether that be songs or music, like movies, it's really hard to stop somebody who has a digital copy of it from sharing it. Yeah. Um, one thing that the blockchain does is it actually enables you to say, no, this is unique. It is a, it is a unique record. It, it allows you to create scarcity. You've yeah. solved the double spend problem. You can't have one dollar that two people have. So that's unique, right? We actually mm-hmm. now have, have really comfortable ways of ensuring digital scarcity that don't rely on one centralized individual like your bank yeah. to say this dollar belongs to Alice but not to Bob. Okay. Right now we've got a decentralized means of ensuring that digital scarcity. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. And the other part of it is that as long as everything's functioning properly, the, the transactions, the records that are held in a blockchain database are immutable. You can't change them. Or at the very least, if you do change them, everyone's going to see. Yeah, I yeah. you can't change those things. Again, go back to your bank. If a bank decides to reject a credit card transaction, that can happen at the point of sale. Well, it can happen days afterwards. If you call up a bank and dispute your credit card transaction, they might reverse it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that means that that transaction is not immutable. The money hasn't gone from you to whoever you bought something from uh, in a way that can't be changed back. Whereas with the blockchain, you do potentially have the ability to do immutable transactions. That's why it might be seen as 
promising for voting. Yeah. Because yeah. hey, if everybody casts their vote, then and we can't change them, then we don't have to worry as much about things like electoral fraud. And it should yeah. be easier for us to count. Right. Because <laughs> right. everyone has a, a scarce digital resource, one vote, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And then you can cast it some one way and it's immutable. So mm -hmm. once you've cast it, it can't change. That's that's the promise yeah. of this blockchain technology. <laughs> Yeah, and so as you mentioned, like the the idea, like the promise of the blockchain yeah. technology, kind of one thing that uh, at least like as a podcast that we like to try to think about is kind of these like this um, um since we are like the millennial part of the millennial action project in general, which yeah. try, tries to focus on issues that are pertaining to like millennials, mm -hmm. for example, like mm -hmm. self driving cars, blockchain technology is an excellent example, like mm -hmm. the type type of things yeah, we want to talk about because. Um, as these type of technologies change so rapidly, um, there's probably an importance to see how can how can Congress keep up with a bunch of these type of technologies. <laughs> yeah. So oh. that is yeah, my question to you: them, like, yeah. how uh, how do you see Congress or the United States in general um, keep up with the changes in technology and how it like interacts with it? So this is a burgeoning area of study in a lot of different fields. So mm -hmm. whether it be political science, there's a lot of legal scholarship on this and a lot of finance and economic stuff as well. I think you can draw some pretty, I think to answer this, you need to delve within the state. Mm -hmm. So there are some elements of the US government that are pretty well on top of what's going on at the moment. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, look, it, it, it might not be as proactive or as early on the game as some would have liked, but in the yeah. grand scheme of things, I think it's doing a really impressive job of staying broadly speaking on top of what's going on in this world, not crushing it. Uh, yeah. although some people would disagree with my assessment of that, but being pretty <laughs> well uh, aware of what's going on. I don't think that the US Congress has exhibited, you know, for example, um, has exhibited similar aptitude for both processing what's, what's happening and thinking about appropriate means of regulation or, mm -hmm. or, or potential strategies for ensuring that you don't crush this ecosystem. Even I, who, who would probably be at least partially skeptical of this technology, mm -hmm. think there is valuable stuff going on. You don't yeah. want to crush it. But uh, at the same time, we want to make sure that people don't get harmed and that there yeah. are hard risks. And I don't believe that Congress is on top of, of that at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to condemn the whole US government. Yeah, I'll definitely not. Some entities that are doing quite impressive stuff in the mm -hmm. SEC is probably a yeah. good and that's kind of where the question was kind of going. See, like, are where are there parts of the U.S. government that are kind of like on top of this? And that's important to know that there is someone kind of staying on top of this. Um, yeah, for better. And again, not everyone would agree with my assessment of that, yeah. but they're engaged. The yeah. FCC is engaged, and they are. You know, that it might not be in the form of black letter rules right mm -hmm. now, but they are. You know, bringing prosecutions, and they are trying to issue guidance that promise more clear guidance yeah. in the near future. So things are happening, and I think that that's pretty commendable because yeah. this stuff is new. It's it is, and it's, um, <laughs> and it's in still sometimes even now, even now I'm still kind of struggling with kind of like sorting all the things that blockchain encompasses <laughs> even now but, um, <laughs> but it is still interesting to see how um that that kind of progresses and how it'll continue to progress hopefully Absolutely. and yeah. Yeah. like yeah. you were saying like one thing it's it's important to be kind of partially skeptical when it comes to these type of things not just and not just like blindly look at this as like the holy grail of technology that oh this is going to solve all our problems but yeah. like still hashing out those those things that can go wrong and 
Um, and I think you brought up a really good example of that earlier with the healthcare mm-hmm. case. So yeah. blockchain and healthcare is something that's been pushed a lot mm-hmm. uh, and and it's being carried out. We see the health records of some Syrian refugees and Jordanian refugee camps being put on the blockchain or on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it's always happening. It's happening right now. And I think there are potential benefits. In a past life, I used to work for the Australian government on an electronic health records project. And there is an advantage, yeah. for example, someone who has a chronic illness mm-hmm. in having all of their records be available to a doctor wherever they go. If yeah. you're on holiday in Seattle, right, and you right. turn up and you have a you have endometriosis and something flares up, then it would be amazing for the doctor there to be able to see to know exactly yeah. what's going on. Not just for you to say, I have endometriosis, but to be able mm-hmm. to see what the other specialists have said. There's real potential there, mm-hmm. um, but there are downsides, and, yeah. and and thinking through those before we roll out these applications is really important. Yeah, that also kind of makes me think of machine learning, which is something we're not going to quite get into, yeah. but um, yeah. I, yeah, it is um, kind of similar in terms of how sometimes rolling these type of applications or uh, technologies out so soon might not be the best call at the moment. Because I know I was watching this TED talk. Um, I, I'm going to try. I don't remember the name at the moment, but it was talking about kind of um, using um, this specific technology. Let me see if I can remember what it was called, but it was regarding sepsis and using machine learning to detect sepsis cases mm-hmm. using the kind of data that they get in the, in the hospital and it will be integrated with the electronic medical record. And that was an interesting concept because sometimes it is hard for, for example, like sepsis is hard to um, actually tell even even with some of the, the tests that they use because it can vary among people. I'm not an expert, but that's from the <laughs> TED talk. <laughs> um, no, it's true. But but so one of the one of the challenges that you'll face is that the diagnosis or the evaluation, whatever you get out of that process is only going to be as good as the algorithm and as the data that you put in, mm-hmm. right? So yep. if this is something that's really on the cutting edge, it may well be that this is only data collected from one of the fanciest, most expensive, most exclusive mm-hmm. hospitals in America, which I'm sure gives an extraordinary level of service, mm-hmm. but may well not have information about the type of conditions, the type of uh, you know d- d- bloodstream yeah. uh, information of, say, inner city urban populations in a place mm-hmm. like Atlanta, yeah. which I, I just think is a really interesting example. I think this could be really positive on the one hand, might have detrimental consequences on the other. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know, because I feel like the, the idea of data, sometimes it can get a little murky with like the issue of perhaps consent if you want to talk oh, about yeah. that mm-hmm. um as we were talking since we're talking about healthcare already um how this idea um how how can um informed consent really apply when it comes to either when it comes to very safe for example the distribution of um, data when it comes to blockchain how do we kind of manage that yeah it's a yeah. really great question because increasingly more and more systems both public and private are migrating to blockchain-enabled databases, or even just being digitized in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's not really possible to opt out of all of those different systems that are being digitized. So one of the cases I study in my research are land registries, which in many countries, not in the United States, in many countries, ownership of land fundamentally accords to whoever is whoever is written down in a government database as having owned a particular block of land. In the US, you sort of have a land title system, so whoever physically has the title has a show ownership of the land, but in many countries, that's not the case. And 
in those countries, you have a really a centralized record of, of property ownership, which is incredibly valuable mm -hmm. and also a potential source of weakness. So one yeah. country I study is the Republic of Georgia, which a decade ago was invaded by Russia and, and they are very conscious of the security threat that would that destruction of land records would pose an enormous economic catastrophe because you can, if you can't, I'm no longer sure who owns land, you can't borrow against it, you can't build on it, you might be vulnerable to legal challenges 20 years down the line. It's a really big issue. So they're digitizing their land records and putting them on the blockchain, which has a lot of advantages, but at that point, you can't opt out. Yeah, yeah. You have no ability to opt out. So what does meaningful consent mean? You know, once, mm. once the land registry, the agency that runs that land registry, they're going to have your data. Mm -hmm. But can they share it with the tax, the tax agency? Because, yeah, because right now, and do you have the, do you, are you able to consent to that or not? Mm -hmm. Right? Because yeah. we might think that could be normally good. That's mm -hmm. going to help you avoid, if you're trying to avoid taxes on your land mm -hmm. because you didn't tell the tax agency that you had it, that might be bad. But flip it around. I'm a foreigner, I'm not an American citizen, mm -hmm. and I have restricted rights in this country. And maybe you could see something like a land registry being tied into something like immigration status, mm -hmm. right? And then that provides a list of people to target. Mm -hmm. If you are looking to uh, you know, target particular groups, um, whether that be based on nationality or ethnicity or religion or something like that, mm -hmm. um, that's what I'm talking about in my research when I, I use the idea of legibility to the state or visibility to the state. Mm -hmm. Because if we have all of these records and increasingly they're digital and increasingly they're able to talk to each other, mm -hmm. then you aren't able to be as obscure anymore. Yeah. You're really legible. Your activities, your identity is in many ways much more visible to the state than it was before. And issues of consent come up there because is it possible to opt out of that? Yeah. You can't really opt out of paying your taxes. Yeah. You can't opt out of being part of the land record system. You can't opt out of an immigration database. Mm -hmm. And so what, what would it even mean for you to exercise consent here? Yeah. That, yeah, those are some issues that I feel can can be kind of overlooked when it comes to like at least in like the term in terms of like approaching it from um like a lawmaking perspective, I can mm -hmm. imagine that would be kind of mm -hmm. a difficult issue to hash out, especially mm -hmm. since you talk about it is not something that, that you can easily opt out of. No. How do you legislate that? How do yeah. you how is it implemented? How is it is it's a, I mean we go back to the San Bernardino case mm -hmm. where you have a, a, a real sense of, of crisis is, is that this was a, a terrorist attack, mm -hmm. a domestic terrorist attack in America. And the immediate problem, of course, is access to this iPhone. Mm -hmm. How can we ensure that that happens? And so yeah. one of the consequences might be you get legislation. Now, in this case, we didn't. We yeah. certainly imagine we get legislation that's rushed through in order to deal with that particular problem. Yeah. Yeah, thinking through these broader issues that I'm trying to think about mm -hmm. in my own research. Mm -hmm. A great example of something where you do see legislation being rushed through is after 9-11. Right, yeah. so you have the Patriot Act, and then in addition to that legislative requirement, you have a bunch of other public policies that ultimately get fully revealed with Snowden's disclosures, even though we knew a fair amount about it beforehand. Where it comes to really wide scale surveillance uh, of phone calls in North America, tapping internet activity coming in and out, use of selectors to scan emails and phone records uh, to try and identify particular, not just specific individuals, but any individuals talking about particular things. That's really changes the nature of this relationship between citizens and the state, but it wasn't something that was necessarily fully thought through before those policies were implemented. So we need to do the thinking now. We need to do it in advance because otherwise we're going to be vulnerable to poor policy making mm -hmm. when something happens like San Bernardino. That's yeah. a really, really big flashpoint. Mm. And how do you think for, for in order to have that kind of like action to face these issues, um, 
this might be more of a different question. Like, do, do how do you think that people who do research on these type of topics or are experts in these type of topics should really um, interact with the government? Like, what is like the role of like that alliance? It's a really tricky question, and that's why I'm encouraged by things like this. You know, mm-hmm. by by things like this podcast and and the project in general, because it can often feel, I think, pretty opaque. Mm-hmm. And pretty closed. You know, this is like a DC bubble, and, and there's not a lot that you can do to penetrate it. Which I certainly felt when I was was in my late teens and early twenties um, in Australia. I think that one thing uh, that that's always valuable is expertise, mm-hmm. right? So it's never if someone's interested in this stuff, I would really encourage you to delve deeper into it because when you're able to talk with authority on something, uh, mm-hmm. then it doesn't mean that people will listen to you. But, but a lot of the time, I think you'd be surprised because there's a thirst for information. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can speak with authority about the blockchain in particular, but I know that even across a range of these tech issues, whether you're looking on the right or on the left mm-hmm. in the partisan spectrum, whether you're looking for public or private individuals, or even within the legal system for for legal Mm -hmm. scholars, then there is a thirst to understand how this works. And somebody who has both the knowledge and the ability to communicate it is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. valuable. So I think that um, there are opportunities both in the public sector, but also within the legal system. I've talked about Carpenter versus United States. But in general, I have to say that understanding of this type of technologies these types of technologies is not strong mm-hmm. among many, particularly senior judges. So yeah. what do they do? They rely on their law clerks. Mm-hmm. And those law clerks come straight out of home schools like University of Wisconsin Law School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they go and directly influence the nature of law in the United States because they're the ones that judges turn to. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of different ways in which I think young people are going to shape this, whether it be explicitly through policy making or whether it just be by contributing knowledge that others simply don't have. Mm. That is that is very actually very insightful, and I like how you mentioned kind of like the right and the left, like because I feel like sometimes like information or at least the knowledge of such yeah. technologies yeah. can transcend politics in a sense, yeah. in terms of like the partisanship of it, yeah, and that can it can allow for opportunities for both the right and the left to kind of see or work together on how to like hash out these issues too, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that can, because I don't know, I feel with like as some of these technologies can grow. Personally, at least, um, I'm not sure how, like, a side per se would take it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's some you, privacy in particular is one of those issues where you get very weird coalitions in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll have the Ron Wyden's of the world, sort of on the far left style, mm-hmm. uh, who ally with the Rand Paul sort of far right libertarian style, almost coming completely round this, you know, meaning about politics as a circle rather than the left right spectrum. Yeah, you know, sort of both on those extremes, and they might they they both do and consistently have exhibited real concerns from a civil liberties perspective about digital privacy and surveillance. Um, whereas we've often seen relative consensus in the middle of mm-hmm. both major parties. So I think that is, yeah, you do get some unlikely coalitions. Yep. The other thing I'll say is that, and this, you know, I, I, I certainly am not often described as a naive optimist, but I do think that because these are really new issues, mm-hmm. um, or I shouldn't say that, these are new technologies, which means yep. the same old issues we've always seen manifest a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. I do think that we don't have as many partisan trenches, or at least the ones that we do have aren't dug as deep mm-hmm. in these type of areas yet. Yeah. And there are smart people, often smart young people who are thinking about these, whether they be more progressive or more conservative, 
who really are open, I think, to new ways of, of approaching technologies like this. So it might be a little bit easier to mm-hmm. get some genuine uh, yeah. cross-partisan, not, not a-partisan. This mm-hmm. is still, mm-hmm. we're still dealing with issues of politics yep. here. But because we don't have trenches that are really, really deep, we might be able to reach and find a little bit more common ground uh, than we can in some in some issues where we've been rehashing the same debates for decades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that, that is interesting that how you mentioned the um, that kind of like there, there's not an entrenchment, but mm-hmm. sometimes it can be the same issues that we've been hashing out for mm-hmm. however long. But it's just like a new, a new face or like a new yeah. coding. Yeah. I, guess, per I se. mean, privacy but, is a great example of that. Yeah. We're recording this in the state of Wisconsin, and McCarthy, you know, McCarthy's oh, yeah, yeah. And you know, look, in many ways, you can draw a straight line, right? Yeah. Like, basically, mm-hmm. how how much should the government be able to surveil, mm-hmm. right? How private should we be in the face yeah. of government? This is not a new issue, mm-hmm. but it manifests differently, mm-hmm. and we can yeah. think about it differently. And I think that does give us a little bit of a chance to approach it differently, even if it's not a, a new thing. Mm. Yes. And let's see. It's interesting to kind of just think about surveillance, like you were saying. Yeah. Because it, it like it is basically a privacy issue there. But um I don't know. I feel like that's something because I always hear people like I talk to like, oh, if you're not doing something wrong, you shouldn't worry. And then like you I don't know. It, it's one of those issues that I always feel is hasn't objectively this is more my personal it is obscure because sometimes i feel like with some issues of surveillance it can become a different type of argument for uh, outside of just politics which is an interesting (laughs) concept you know like (laughs) it doesn't become ethical it's more of an abstract yeah and i feel like as you look back throughout history like the idea of surveillance I feel it has just shaped in a different way, you know, mm-hmm. from taking well, it from we've like always a, had surveillance. Yeah. I mean, like and throughout history, we've always had surveillance. It's just complete as, as uh, Ben was saying, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's been manifesting itself in different ways. Yeah. For, and especially with new technological advances, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see in the future how it continues to manifest itself. Because mm-hmm. Will it start to transcend more? Will it just, stay more at this certain this certain level of it or will it sort of rest we don't really know because it's in the future really so there are there's right. some really interesting uh I, I think we do see a consistent trend of states seeking more and more information about their subjects right uh and that's something that uh james scott has written about uh most famously i think in political science this idea of, of seeing like a state and states mm-hmm. trying to understand and make legible populations territories economic factors of production all of these different things yeah uh and and i do believe that there's something sort of hardwired about that mm-hmm. into into the modern state but even even into sort of forms of political organization more broadly yeah. yeah uh one of the features of, of liberal democracies is are these sort of checks and balances and the ability to push back on it. And so that's why yeah. Supreme Court decisions like Carpenter are really interesting because they do represent part of the government, but not the executive, clamping down on the ability of the executive mm-hmm. to, to conduct certain forms of surveillance. So yeah. that is something that we don't see in all countries. We, you know, we see the, the push for more surveillance everywhere, but we don't necessarily see the checks and balances or mm-hmm. the kind of restrictions on that that are evident in the United States, whether or not you think we've got the balance right or wrong maybe the europeans do it better the new zealanders <laughs> do it better right like absolutely I'm, I, yeah. that's a very live debate but that's the, the, the idea that states will generally seek more and more information about their subjects mm-hmm. 
I don't think it's too controversial to suggest that that's like oh, a pretty yeah. universal thing. Yeah. 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 And Always. Back. You never know which year for your governing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you fear your own subjects and you also want to tax them. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe recruit them to the military. Exactly. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Know as much yeah. as you can about. Exactly. Good. Yeah. 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 It's that informational right. idea that information yeah. is power. Yeah. And I feel like going back to healthcare, because we were talking about more like the informational side of, of um, private, or, um, surveillance, they're actually, fun fact, in hospitals, they do have some, in some hospitals, they actually have like a system of video monitoring mm. of some patients um, in order to kind of like reduce falls. So like the idea of like surveillance in terms of kind of like promoting safety, what are your thoughts on that? Because where I work, actually, we, we have that system and it's more in place just to kind of provide a, a more... Um, like kind of like to reduce the use of sitters. Yeah, but that's kind of like. I mean, it's it. it I I really don't want to come across as just technophobic and oh, seeing as no. yeah, this is no. negative <laughs> because that's such a good example of yeah. where you know literally making someone more legible. So in this mm-hmm. case, maybe not to the state, but to people who are trying to take care of them, is mm-hmm. so valuable. Yeah. and I really do think that there are. Such wonderful opportunities. Technology is already mm-hmm. made a fantastic difference. Yeah. I, mean, I talk about technology. ICTs, information communication mm-hmm. technologies, have really made a massive difference. And that's a fantastic example. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think it starts to become problematic, at least for me, yeah. right, is is when we do think about what that data gets used for. Yeah. Right? So uh, this classic example, and you can find infinite number uh uh, of examples of products where data was collected, maybe without users' full knowledge, and then was mm-hmm. shared, yeah. again, maybe without users' full knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that will get you into trouble, mm-hmm. but not that much trouble. And most of the time, it's not really, uh, figure, we don't figure it out, and mm-hmm. it's only settled out of court later, and it might cost you some money. But yeah, the, the data in and of itself is seen as valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find, info- like I said, there's innumerable cases. My favorite one is about, uh, and I won't, I won't slowly the name of the brand, but it it's about uh, the use of vibrators that you can control with your mobile phone, right? Which is great for long distance relationships, it yeah. turns out. But also the company was collecting that data uh, and as part of its terms of service had given itself the right to use that or to sell that for various forms of marketing. Right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that there are companies that would be interested in that. You could yeah. fit people into particular boxes. Someone in a long distance relationship, mm-hmm. you know, who might be inclined to make luxury consumer purchases, right? right. Like that, that's that's useful and valuable data, but it's also mm-hmm. not something we're necessarily comfortable sharing. Yeah. Right? Where and so I think that that's where uh, that that's the basis of our the modern system in the United States is called. You know, we often summarize it as notice and consent. So mm-hmm. you have to notify somebody of what you'll do with their data if you're collecting it and get their consent. But in reality, that doesn't really work because we've all seen those terms of service that you just sort of click through and so yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not, it's not possible to avoid doing that. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just to use the App Store, it's over 50 pages. I think it's 60 pages now of terms and conditions that mm-hmm. even I am barely qualified to, to read through and I have a law degree. And this is what I do professionally, and I don't necessarily understand it. In fact, there are studies out there that show, and this was over five years ago, that if you actually read through all of the terms and conditions that you would come across in an average year, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you spend an eight-hour day reading all of those terms and conditions. It would take you something like 80 to 90 days <laughs> just yeah. to read the terms Sounds and conditions. Right. Just to yeah. read the terms and conditions. Now, mm-hmm. that's not, that shows there's something fundamentally broken with this model of notice and consent. Yeah. Because it, you don't have meaningful notice and you yeah. can't give meaningful consent mm-hmm. to what it is that you know, your data is being used for. And again, that's a problem that, that didn't used to be a problem if the only form of technology that was collecting data on you was maybe your phone records, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. right? But now there's so much out there. Now technology has changed mm-hmm. so much. We haven't, the law isn't able to keep up with that change in, in technological status, which is, which is a real issue. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, I feel like that question of consent continually just comes, comes up with technology. Like yeah. you were talking about consent yeah. earlier, you talked about it again. Like that really is kind of a lot of the basis of a lot of our privacy is if we consent to things. I mean, like, I just think that it just, I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with this. I just kind of wanted to comment on that. <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating. And, and ultimately, one of the root causes of that is the business model of most digital capitalism, mm-hmm. digitally enabled capitalism, which is advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the dominant business model at the moment is either set yourself up as a platform, so you become like Amazon or eBay where mm-hmm. people exchange, or like the App Store. So earlier this week, we're recording this uh, this podcast on Tuesday, November 27th. Mm-hmm. Earlier, I believe Monday, November 26th, the Supreme Court here heard a case involving Apple and its App Store. Uh, Apple takes 30% of every transaction that's made on the App Store. Basically, pure rent seeking profit off the top, right? That's mm-hmm. one way in which you can make money in the digital economy. Set yourself up as a platform, yeah. you know, your Amazon, do your apples. But the other one is to have really, really good advertising. Mm-hmm. And that's the Google model, yeah. right? That's the that's the Facebook model. Yeah. Um, and one of the problems with that is that it's really, really hard to know where you draw a line about what would consent be when right. just by using that service, they're sort of saying, you get this for free, but the Condition is we observe all of the data about you possible. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's not possible to pay a fee. There's been an interesting debate over a number of years about how much would you pay to use Facebook with no no tracking, no privacy violation. Like, oh, we yeah. can actually put a, a dollar value on it. And it just, I mean, just like with cheap fares in airlines, right? It turns out that consumers, while they say they're concerned about privacy, and I believe they are, are typically not willing to actually spend money for something that might have greater privacy protections, even when, you know, even though they're concerned about privacy, mm-hmm. when there's a free alternative out there. Now, we don't necessarily have great free alternatives. There isn't a paid social network that can give you the type of, of breach and you know, opportunities for interaction that Facebook does. Um, so it's not a perfect comparison. But the airline example does show that well, you know, airlines can put more and more seats and smaller and smaller bathrooms on these planes and people will continue to get on them. Yeah. And, and so I do think that you know, there might just be something here where we say we're concerned about privacy, but until consumer behavior actually changes, it's not going to lead to, to meaningful reform. Well, I'm just curious, is it more because of that's more of a habitual thing that's formed? Like, yeah. is it because we have this free service that we're just kind of getting used to, like, our privacy being breached all the time? Or is it more like we just actually do not care? Like, is, I as mean, consumers? one of the, it, it is a really, again, a really difficult question because this idea of surveillance capitalism or mm-hmm. ad- advertising, uh, surveillance and world advertising is so baked into so much of the internet. Mm-hmm. I believe there is. There are examples that show that consumers are willing to pay. And mm-hmm. Apple is one of those, right? Yep. So Apple, Apple does demonstrate that people are willing to pay for premium products and, and services. Also, we see 
hopeful signs in the media industry. Uh, so I subscribe to a number of media outlets and a number of outlets are subscribing on subscription-based models. So the New York Times is one that's doing particularly well, Washington Post as well, particularly since the election of Donald Trump. Uh, the Athletic in sports media, sort of a startup that is doing really interesting things, disrupting existing industries, and it's not doing so on the basis of advertising. Yeah. Which was even the business model of traditional newspapers, which subsidize themselves largely through classified advertisement rather than subscription fees. This shows that there might be another way that consumers are willing to pay for. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what that looks like and how much it fragments the media environment. That's one of the benefits of digital technologies yeah. is that I can, if I want, pay for a newsletter that has 5,000 subscribers only, right? And mm -hmm. But if I'm paying five bucks a month, maybe that makes it worth someone's while to, to produce that newsletter. That type of thing may well constitute a viable alternative to surveillance capitalism, mm -hmm. yeah. at least in part, maybe yeah. just to, to, mm -hmm. to augment it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so this question is not necessarily exactly when it comes to like how your data is used to create advertisements, but um, as you were mentioning, kind of like finding an alternative for paying for something. Um, have you ever heard of an app called Patreon? Yeah, it's yeah, a fantastic pa example. Yeah, Patreon's yeah. one of those things that actually for those who don't know, um, Patreon's like a sort of um, crowdfunding service where if you're a creator of, a, of content so that you don't have to rely on advertisers, you pretty much crowdfund from your audience to kind of um, fund your work. And that, that's kind of what I thought of when it came to the idea of uh, how, how can you like fund um, services or um, networks for, for um, to have like that more um, privacy, more privacy, but maybe this is not exactly a privacy thing. It's more, like, more to just, that's more kind of more that subscriber model that you were yeah, talking about before. Like it is. Patreon is, you're asking if your subscribers to mm -hmm. pay for your service. But it yeah. is interesting. Yeah. So it is, I mean, of... the origin is different. And yeah. I yeah. take that it's... point. But I think it might potentially show that there is a way forward. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a way, a viable means of funding really valuable digital content that doesn't rely just on advertising, mm -hmm. which, to be perfectly honest, right from the birth of the internet, was really the only way to make, uh, to make financial financially mm -hmm. viable businesses was based yeah. on selling lots. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so I think this is a really promising new Patreon this is an example of maybe you know, it doesn't come yeah. with this desire for privacy but it might show a way in which we could yeah. construct much more privacy conscious mm -hmm. uh, digital ecosystems yeah. yeah exactly and I don't know I, 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 whenever I think about data and privacy I think about kind of like breaches and leaks <laughs> and how like that data can be exposed and um, since we talked about vibrators earlier um, we'll talk about the uh, the breach for Ashley Madison. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah let's drag this right down. Who remembers that? Like, I don't because I was actually reading on um, Wikipedia. No, um, don't, don't, don't. No one, no one attacking for as, that. As, but, as I say to all of my students, you should all read Wikipedia. Just don't cite Wikipedia. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's yeah, but um, yeah. So I was reading on Wikipedia that apparently the site policy for Ashley Madison. They don't delete the profiles, no, and no. so that therefore, like all, a lot of the data they give them is all kept, like street addresses, names, just all this invaluable information that um, you you really can't escape. You know, like, <laughs> if someone knows where you live, you, you can only really do so much. You know, I um, think it's a great example of. Yeah, if we, if we go back to thinking about where we are right now uh, with our current models of privacy, that's not a privacy violation. Why? Because presumably buried somewhere deep in the terms and conditions of Ashley Madison's terms mm -hmm. of service, it said we will keep everything forever and mm -hmm. you might try and delete your account, but we're not going to let that happen. Yep. So under the notice and consent model, anybody who signed up has agreed to it. 
mm-hmm. legally the problem, right? Yeah. You know, um, now you might get in the problem only because you don't have good enough IT systems, so you got hacked. But that's separate, right, mm-hmm. to this yeah. idea of having that information in the first yeah. place. So there is a, there's an example. Some some law scholars, you know, Hartzog, Waldman, you know, like a few of these that are really trying to reframe privacy because the way it's treated at the moment is often as equivalent to a property interest, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I have an interest in keeping my my transactions, my thoughts, my behavior private. It's mine, right? Like I own it. And so I, if I'm going to share that with somebody else, I have to hack into some type of contractual agreement with them. You can borrow my data that I'm going to put on your dating website. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I give you permission to use this in this particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is one way of thinking about privacy. Mm-hmm. It's not the only way. And so in much of my research, I focus on the concept of trust. And it turns out that a bunch of these law scholars have also picked up on this concept of trust. So we might think about privacy not as a, a property that we own and then have to sign away, but actually as a, a describing a particular relationship. So if I do enter into a contract with Apple to use services on its app store, right, that, mm-hmm. that might be a privacy relationship where broadly speaking, mm-hmm. I'm trusting Apple to keep my data private and only to use it for the purposes that I've agreed to use it for. Right. That, that, that's another way of thinking about this relationship that isn't just once I've signed a contract, I've signed away all my boxes. Uh, so do I all my rights. I've ticked the boxes, I've got no more rights. Yeah. Um, the Harvard Berkman Klein Center has been putting out this idea, uh, a number of publications on the idea of um, thinking about information fiduciaries. Uh, excuse me, fiduciaries. And the idea of fiduciaries, again, comes from the financial system, but it's somebody who has a legal obligation to act in the best interests of their client or of someone mm. else, right? So if we wanted to think about something like Google as an information fiduciary, then that would imply, no, just because I signed a, you know, signed a box and said, yes, you know, I'm going to sign up for Gmail, um, I haven't signed away all of my rights to privacy because you have a fiduciary responsibility to protect you know, my privacy, not just in as defined in your terms and conditions, but as the idea of a, a relational interaction that I have with you. I will share data with you, right? But only a certain amount of data and only for data that I'm aware that I'm sharing with you and only to be used in certain ways. Um, yeah. It's a different way of thinking about privacy. It's not the current legal model out mm-hmm. there, uh, but it's it's gaining some traction. It will be interesting to see whether that, you know, different ways of conceptualizing what it means uh, to be private and vigilant or gain traction within the legal system just because i'm curious because like you, you're talking about like all this uh how privacy affects civilians and how privacy affects like uh states but like how does it affect like war like how does how does privacy and information technology affect like wars how does it affect conflicts between states how does it affect like uh because i we were talking like i i'm taking an intro to our class and we we're talking about how like there's a first second third fourth generation warfare so first is like pre-World Wars, second and third are both World War One, World War II, and fourth is the current or modern one, which is more guerrilla style. But as it, we were even talking about we're shifting technologically from the um, from this more guerrilla based, like asymmetrical warfare to even more technological mm-hmm. warfare and how we're mm-hmm. trying to like stop warfare before it even starts. So how does like privacy of individual citizens in other countries uh, affect war? How does like conflict yeah. be affected by it? It's really, uh, so the topic of cyber war is such a broad one and it, it is really interesting. I think it, at least if we're gonna put a, a narrow just a little bit in thinking about issues of privacy, mm-hmm. one of the fascinating things 
that that cyber war has done is really expand in ways we haven't seen before the type of objects, subjects, concepts that that can be uh, utilized in in what we might call war. Right? Yeah. Let's box for a second the legal definition of yeah. whether it's war or not, um, and just think about it. So uh, it may well be that personnel records are now something that are vulnerable and are really incredibly valuable as well as being vulnerable in some type of adversarial contact mm. context. And we see that in the United States with the infamous hack of the Office of Personal Management, the OPM hack a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. something like 20 million records. And these are the people who have applied for security clearances. Mm-hmm. So these are the people who have top secret security clearances and their files that are being held with the information they've volunteered to the Office of Personnel Management in fact, we think by the Chinese, and they never actually appeared on the dark market, the dark net, which makes it seem very much like a state-sponsored attack. Because if you were a private criminal, you would obviously want to be selling that data. Mm-hmm. A couple of records did appear on the dark net, but it looked a lot like a ruse. So we yeah. think probably the Chinese did that. Now, again, is that an act of war? It's not carried out with kinetic means, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not seeing special forces physically crossing a land borders in order to take those records and carry them back to China. Mm-hmm. That would clearly be an act of war, mm-hmm. right? But if the only difference is whether somebody physically goes in, gets the records and takes them back to China, or whether you do it electronically, shouldn't we be thinking about them the same way? Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't it like, mm-hmm. Does the means matter or does the outcome matter? You think about the same thing when it comes to critical infrastructure. So protecting critical infrastructure is something really, really, uh, yeah, well, to be perfectly honest, is terrifying, particularly in Western countries, the United States being a leading example. Why? Because so much stuff is digitized. So much stuff is connected to the internet. And mm-hmm. the security, you only have to lose once. You have yeah. to find one vulnerable component uh, mm-hmm. in order to be able to hack into a lot of these systems. So think about something like a large dam outside a major met- metropolitan area. Right. Mm-hmm. If you drop a bomb on that, that's a kinetic attack. That's clearly an armed attack, right? And say the damn battles and a number of people drown. What happens if you hack in and then you exfiltrate, uh, you know, exfiltrate data and maybe that allows you then to ultimately down the line um, jam a sluice gate and, mm-hmm. and potentially have catastrophic effects. Now, there are a number of different ways of thinking about this. Uh, if people are interested in this, then uh, you know, there's, there's a voluminous body of literature. And in fact, it's the, the Talon Manual is where a bunch of international lawyers have tried to get together and think about cyber war and how we take existing principles of international humanitarian law, which is the law of armed conflict, mm-hmm. US and how we might apply that to cyber. So one way in which you might think about it is, does it have kinetic effects? Right. So something like a dam, we can see it has kinetic effects. It's real world, right? So maybe there we say that would, you know, clearly constitute cyber war and we should treat it basically the same. They're the means, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But again, let's go back to the OPM hack, right? Like mm-hmm. that, if we if that was conducted in an uncon context, if you sent Chinese troops in to steal those records, we would clearly see that as a breach of sovereignty, right? That's yeah. not an attack. Right. But that happened here, yeah. like three years ago, yeah. and as far as you can tell, the response was pretty minimal, right? Like mm-hmm. we know that some of these things occur, but not that much happened. So clearly, in that case, a breach of privacy, right, mm-hmm. seems to indicate that there, the means through which uh, an attack occurs does change yeah. whether we think of it as war, does change how we might respond. Whereas that isn't the case in something like you know hacking a dam to see the mm-hmm. It's a fascinating question. We just don't know. And I think one of the reasons is it's never been possible to exfiltrate, to take, to, to weaponize private data in the volume that it is now possible to weaponize that private data because we haven't had it before. Mm-hmm. And again, to go back to where I started, because citizens are more visible than the state. Uh, 
uh, that can help the state. It can also be a source of weakness for the state if another state comes and takes those records. Right. Um, uh, and and we haven't figured out, uh, the US, the Obama administration had to figure out on the fly how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, there was no playbook. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know if there's a playbook now yeah. because we can talk tough about retaliation all we want, but we didn't see very much. Yeah. I don't really believe there's been meaningful deterrence of that mm-hmm. type of attack. It's a really, really fascinating question the degree to which privacy and privacy of personal data changes war and creates new targets yeah. uh, for warfare. And that goes back to like how we were talking about this kind of like the idea of keeping up with the technology yeah. and it's kind of like <laughs> the potential. Yeah, that, struggle. Yeah, it's, the, a, it's a really big struggle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. technology advances so quickly, you can only put legislation out that's actually well brought out so yeah. quickly. So yeah. that's mm-hmm. the huge challenge for the future, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. No. But, and I think this is why I like to use the SEC example. Like, look, the SEC lagged a little bit behind mm-hmm. the development of cryptocurrencies, yeah. but it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is it doesn't have to get legislation. Mm-hmm. It still has to get regulations and orders and guidance and things like that. But that's a much more that's a much faster moving process mm-hmm. right? than something like a congressional action. And so if you're young and smart and know what you're doing in terms of finance and Bitcoin, then the SEC is probably interested in talking to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, certainly there's a lot of private firms that are interested in talking to you, oh, and, yeah. whether it be law firms or finance firms. And that's how you can really start to, I think, shape these policy debates by getting mm-hmm. in there and doing it. Yeah. You know, I don't wait for Congress as well. I mean, sure, like Congress is great, but yeah. you know, mm-hmm. if we can get some legislation, that's brilliant. But yeah. this stuff is happening. And yeah. there are ways to shape it yeah. and really tangible. And yeah, so that's that's not that's really good. Like all, all good stuff we just kind of covered. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, since we're all I, I'm assuming Ben's millennial here too. Just. Just. <laughs> oh, good. So, um, what, just like maybe just to like kind of wrap everything up, um, what would be like some advice you give people who kind of either how to like get started with exploring the topic of Bitcoin, of um, blockchain technology or like the res- or what we just talked about today, and like what kind of action can like young people take to kind of like like we were talking about kind of like have some influence or like at least have some like stronger knowledge about such topics. So I think there's there's a couple of different things I'd say. One is one is narrow, right? So if you're interested in Bitcoin, if you're interested in this stuff, then the world is your oyster. If you're interested mm-hmm. in the technologies in general, right? Whatever they are, um, take the time out. Do take the initiative to learn about them. If the courses aren't offered, find some people who will teach it to you online or not. Most of this stuff is free. Uh, you can learn a lot of the technology stuff for free. So if you're interested in that, do it. It's valuable. Mm. There's demand everywhere, whether you want to work public, private, profit, non-profit, government, uh, government agencies, regulatory, whether you want to be partisan, it doesn't matter. There's demand, right? <laughs> so that's what I'd say is it's, it's valuable. Those skills are in uh, are really in demand. Then figure out what you think and then say something about it. Get on a podcast, write a blog post, write to somebody, you know, write to the office of a representative. There's demand for information. If you've got it, then people will find you. Um, the other thing I'd say on a broad on a broader scale is it doesn't have to be technology specific you know so i i try to orient a lot of my writing around a rights frame uh, Mm -hmm. or around concepts like trust Mm -hmm. how does trust affect these interpersonal relationships and those are things that i write about in the context of technology you don't have to you know um if you're interested in something like uh, surveillance or privacy or whether you're interested in access to healthcare, you know, whether it be 
uh, you know, how, how we reform the, the healthcare system, right? Maybe yeah, to, right. Treat, to treat old people better, whatever it is. Uh, that's a, that thematic focus is often just as valuable as, as the specific focus, something like a particular technology mm-hmm. that makes sense. So yeah. I think you can go about it in both ways. You know, you might be able to sit here and say, I'm interested in the tech. I want to learn up about that and then you'll be valuable. But you can also think about, okay, I actually want, you know, I, I care about, you know, healthcare as a right. Where's that, where is that industry? Where is that sector going? What matters there? And it might be, how do we think about caring for old people? Because we're going to have a lot more of them. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. So that maybe that's where you focus. Or maybe it's technology in the healthcare system. How do we think about issues of consent, right? That might be sort of my focus, but I know that's not going to be everybody's. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so so you don't have to start with, with the technology. I think being open to starting with the issue and then seeing where the demand is for that is really important. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's never too early to start thinking about that, whether you're you know, 16 or 26 or like me in your fourth decade. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. Um, Thanks, guys. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. I'm Alex. I'm JH. And this was Ben. We're signing off.